You are listening to Resurrection Indiana. To find out more about our meeting times and location, check us out on Facebook or Instagram, or visit our website at resurrectionindiana.org. We live in a time that can easily feel hopeless. Now, you could probably go back through history and find that that is not unusual throughout a lot of places in history. But we look at our own time today and we see a war going on between Ukraine and Russia that is now approaching the two-year mark. This fall, we witnessed the beginning and ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. And daily, it seems, hear statistics and stories of casualties and atrocities that are carried out. We read news stories of nations that oppress their people. And even in nations that are considered free, and in fact, that really are, we see places that, like our own, that struggle with division and polarization and massive social and economic challenges. Just a few days ago, Canada launched a new suicide prevention hotline. And while they say that the number of suicides in their country has remained relatively steady over the past few years, meaning that it hasn't risen dramatically, but the number of people in crisis has exponentially risen. And that helpline that opened up just the last few days is expected to receive up to 700,000 calls this first year that it exists. And so with all that is pressing in this world, we might wonder why it makes time to spend this morning looking at an obscure book and kind of an obscure passage, the biblical story of creation. It actually makes a lot of sense that the creation story was actually written to give hope, that it was written to show us the God who is the creator of all things. And it was written to show us the God who not only created all things, but the God who cares for us. And to show us a story in which we really can, in this world today, find real and true hope. One of the things that we see in that creator is hope, first of all. We can hope in the fact that there is a creator because of the things that we are told about him. Now keep in mind here, often we read Genesis, if you've, if you've read this story, and we see it as, well, this is the story of creation, which of course it is. And we see it in the order. We see Genesis and the creation, and then, and then we go on. By the end of Genesis, you get Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then you go into Exodus, and you get the story of the pharaohs and Moses and uh, the rescue from Egypt and these, and these sorts of things. But it is helpful to remember that Genesis was actually written not before those things, not actually when the creation happened, but Genesis was actually written by Moses and was written during the time that God's people were being brought out of slavery in Egypt, during the time that they had been rescued. And God rescues his people. When you read that Exodus story, many of you are familiar with this, that he rescues people by decisively demonstrating his power over the Egyptians and all of their gods. But the people of Israel, God's people at that time, likely, 
probably didn't know that much about their God. They maybe would have had some history passed down to them, some oral history, verbal history, about their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and maybe how they came to be in Egypt several hundred years earlier. It's actually very likely that they maybe wouldn't have known much more than that. And so when they are given, when they're in the wilderness and they're given that story of creation in Genesis, it's actually to show them who their God is, to show them who this God is who had rescued them. And the first thing that God's people are told is that God is the creator of all things, that the world, everything in it has its origins in his creative work. And God is unique in that. Sometimes we say that human beings create things, and there's truth in that. But human beings create out of material that already exists. Sometimes we do a pretty good job with that. But God creates things wholly new out of nothing. And from the accounts at the beginning of Genesis, it doesn't look like it appears to be any effort for him. God simply speaks and things come into existence. The earth, the sky, the oceans, the mountains, everything is brought into existence by his word. God is so powerful that nothing stands in his way. And so one thing that God's people get in this account as they have been brought out of Egypt is that the God who rescued them is a God of immense and incomprehensible power. Consequently, not only is he the creator, but he is the king. He is the king over all things. Now, Egypt, like other nations and even nations today, worshipped numerous gods, whether it was the sun or the moon, the god of the sky, the sea, the land. But those gods are no comparison for the God of Israel. Because while those gods are limited to a specific realm, this God, the God of Israel, rules over everything. And that is the reason for the plagues of God's judgment that roll over Egypt with virtually no opposition. A God that is made out of a created thing is no comparison to the God who created all things. And because he's the creator, he owns all rights over his creation. Sometimes I use an analogy like this. If you are at the beach and you make a sandcastle and somebody comes and kicks it over, that's just rude. But if you build a sandcastle sand and you kick it over, that's okay. We might say it's a waste, but you know what? You made it. You can do whatever you want with it. If God created all things, it is his right to rule over his creation and even to do so however he sees fit. And so what we wind up with is a God who is a creator, a God who is a king, who has all rights over his creation. That is a fearsome God. But we see more than that, too. 
from the very beginning, God is present and active in his creation, that he cares for his creation. Israel learns that they are his people and that they're in relationship with God. The truth is that God was in relationship with the whole of his creation from the beginning, that he obligated himself to it. And not just to human beings, but to the whole of creation itself. Actually, next week we'll talk a little bit more about this and exactly what that means and what it looks like. But for now, it's enough to remember that this is a God who cares about his creation. I remember once being at a conference that was talking about community development work in lower income, struggling neighborhoods. You know, places with a lot of physical needs, you know, whether housing needs or needs for families and so forth. And I remember one speaker at this conference talking about how God feels for those places and even that God weeps over places like that and and the fact that people struggle and the fact that there is difficulty that goes on, that things are not the way they are supposed to be. I was with him at that point. That's true. Those are all things, actually, that you'll find in the Bible. Things are very often in this world not the way they're supposed to be. But then this speaker went on to talk about how God desperately wanted to see things different, but he was powerless to do anything about it because his people were not active. And, of course, his motivation here was that God's people need to get busy in these difficult places because God is just waiting for us to get busy because he can't do anything until we do. And you know, that's kind of when I lost him. We don't believe in a God who is limited. We don't believe in a God whose hands are tied, who is just sort of fretting and and waiting because he needs us to get it together. If we have any hope at all, any real hope, it's in a God who doesn't need us, who doesn't have to wait for us before he can act. And that's exactly the hope that we get. Our hope is not in a God who has to wait for us. Our hope is in a God who doesn't wait, but a God who reaches down into this world, who meets us where we are, who is living and who is active here in this place. He hasn't left. This is the God that is presented to God's people as they are in the wilderness, learning about this God who has rescued them. But the creation account course tells us a lot about the world itself. Not only do we see a God of hope in the creation story, we also see a world in which there is a lot of hope. The creation is, in fact, God's kingdom, part of his kingdom. We find hope because that creation belongs to him. Of course, again, it doesn't always look like that today. And again, we'll get into why that is and and what that means next week. But even in our present day, we need to remember how the creation is spoken of in those first couple chapters of Genesis. Because we very often don't hear what the Bible presents in our world today and even in the Christian church very often. 
Genesis chapter 1 in verse 10, and God saw that it was good in verse 12, and God saw that it was good in verse 18, and God saw that it was good. Are you sensing a pattern? In verse 25, and God saw that it was good in verse 31. At the end of the sixth day, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That is significant because of the way that we often view the world today. We talk about spirituality, whether it's Christianity or or anything else. Very often it is seen about moving to some sort of higher existence, about being free from this physical world that we're sort of entrapped in. Like I said, sometimes even Christians take this view that our hope in Jesus is, in fact, about one day being rescued out of this physical world. That we will rise to something, be taken away to someplace more spiritual. But that is not the view of the Bible. The creation was good. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, there is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. And that's why he uses material things like bread and wine to put new life into us. He goes on to say, we may think that this is rather crude and unspiritual, but God doesn't. God invented eating. He likes matter. He invented that. And in that creation, that physical creation that is good, there is the reflection of God himself in humanity. Human beings, the end of chapter one we see, are created in the image of God. Now that doesn't mean that human beings are themselves little gods. It means that human beings are created as a reflection or a mirror of God's character. What is it that sets human beings apart from every other creature in the world? That's it. It is that distinction. Human beings and nothing else, not even angels, are created in God's image. This is why the Apostle Peter in the New Testament says even angels long to look into this. Because even the angels stand outside of what human beings have been given. That's why it doesn't matter if Coco the gorilla can use sign language or if dolphins can communicate through the sounds that they make and have even sophisticated language. That is not a threat to the distinctness of human beings. Dolphins might be smarter than us, but they are not created in God's image. It isn't about ability. It's about that image, that reflection. And what that means is every human being is created with inherent dignity and worth. You have value. And it doesn't matter whether you're good at sports or math or whether you have good looks or unusual talent. You matter simply by virtue of being human because you are created in his image. You are a reflection of him. You are significant and you matter. 
even if dolphins are pretty cool. And even though the world is no longer what it was at creation, and even though that image that exists in you is marred, and again, we'll talk about that, but these things are still true. As a human being, you and everybody you meet matters. And there is still good in the world. And we need to get over this idea that coming to God means leaving the physical world behind. C.S. Lewis, again, as a young man questioning what he believed, says that he first came to the conclusion that if there was a true religion, that it was most likely either Christianity or Hinduism. When he looked at the history of the world's religions, that's kind of what he narrowed it down to. Now there's kind of more in his description of that. But essentially, he said either Christianity or Hinduism, he determined if there is a true religion, it is probably most likely one of those two. And from there, he became convinced that Christianity was much more likely to be true. And here's why. He says, in Christianity, this is the only religion that, believe, that brings together both the material worlds and the spiritual, the things that are material and the things that are spiritual. And Lewis put it like this. He says, it is only, and of course, this is somebody, he was an Oxford English professor. He says, it is only Christianity which compels a highbrow like me to partake in a ritual blood feast. As he's talking about the communion that we celebrate in the Christian church. And at the same time, he said, it also compels an uneducated man in an underdeveloped country to attempt an enlightened universal code of ethics. For an educated highbrow who lives in his mind, it reminds me that there is more than just the life of the mind. And for somebody who seems to live entirely in the physical world, Christianity raises him to something else, but doesn't remove him from where he is. The world is not the way it's supposed to be, but the story of creation shows us who God is. And one of the reasons that it gives us hope is that it shows us where we've come from and it shows us what we were meant for. And finally, we come to that passage in the New Testament because there's one more significant thing to the creation story that I want to point out. And that's this passage in Colossians, verses 15 through 17, that I read earlier. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. And in him all things hold together. Everything that we have been saying about God and his creation was, in fact, carried out by God the Son. There's probably a lot that could be said about the doctrine of the Trinity here. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that Christianity believes that there is one God, but he exists in three persons. He is both a unity and a diversity. So two things. It is by the work of the Son that God accomplished creation. And two, it is by the work of God the Son that everything is held together. It is the Son, Colossians tells us, who created and sustains the universe, that even today he is intricately involved with it and with us. The Son rising and setting like clockwork. 
the world spinning on its axis, all of that is maintained by the sun. One scholar puts it this way from this passage. He says, he is the sustainer of the universe and he is the unifying principle of its life. God the Son. So Christians believe that God is one God in three persons. So what difference does it make if the Son is the person who created and sustains all things? That fine. It is God, of course, who created we're still talking about him, right? We are. But if we know the end of the story, and we do, that tells us something. All the things we've said about Advent this morning, Advent is the anticipation of the sun coming into the world. It's the anticipation of the creator entering into his creation and entering into his creation in order to rescue it and us. In the person of Jesus, the son is born in a manger. He grows up. He lives a perfect life in your place. And he dies the death that you deserve because he takes on himself the judgment that you deserve on the cross so that you might have the right instead of being condemned in a world that is fallen, that you might instead have the right to be called a child of God. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? The one who created and sustains all things and who was there from the beginning. So do you catch what's happening here? The Savior of the world is present in its very creation from the beginning. When the world was created, when it was called good, and the first humans were in perfect relationship with God, even then, the creation held the means of the rescue that would one day be necessary. The rescue of the world that we need so desperately now was baked into its very creation. Remember what we said about the power of God. It's not just his power, but his knowledge. It's not just his omnipotence. That's another word for his power. But his omniscience, another word for his knowledge, that he knows everything. God knew the end from the beginning. And the means of redemption were built into the very foundation of the creation. That means something significant for us. The advice columnist asked, Ask Amy recently published the following letter. Dear Amy, 20 years ago, I had an affair that ended my eight-year marriage. I am extremely remorseful, and even though I have apologized to my ex and he has forgiven me, I can't seem to forgive myself. The phrase, once a cheater, always a cheater, just plays on an endless loop in my head. I hate myself for betraying a man who was nothing but kind toward me. I honestly feel like if I forgive myself, it's like saying that what I did was okay. I also feel like a huge hypocrite when conversations with friends turn to infidelity. My closest friends know what I did, but not everyone. So I feel like if I chime in on the topic about how wrong I think it is because now I know better, I am just lying to everyone. I feel obligated to disclose what a horrible person I was. 
and not play some charade as if I would never do something like that because I did. If I somehow do manage to forgive myself, isn't this just me saying to everyone that what I did was okay when it's not? Will I ever get past this? See, God knows the end all the way back from the beginning. Whatever you come with, whatever you carry with you, whether it is guilt and regret and shame, whatever keeps you from Jesus, you need to know this. He is not surprised. He knows, and he knew from the beginning, because he was there. And he would one day enter into the creation himself to bring forgiveness and healing and hope. There is hope in knowing that the author of the story knows the end from the beginning. The story of creation was written to give hope. Over the last few years, doom scrolling is a new word, and it was coined. I think most of you maybe probably know what this is coined to describe our tendency looking through social media feeds and news feeds to continue scrolling through bad news, even when that news is disheartening and depressing. Like we can't stop ourselves. It's like the digital equivalent of rubbernecking. There are countless reasons to look at the world today and to feel like there isn't any hope. But there is hope because we have a creator who cares for us. And the story of the creation gives us a picture of who God is. And it gives us a context for hope in this world. Let me pray for us.